0: Hi everyone, so um, welcome back to another episode of the Black Create Connect podcast where I speak with a range of entrepreneurs, so black entrepreneurs, black professionals, um, black change makers and today we have um, from all the way in the States, Alan Bray who is the founder of Talk DEI, welcome Alan
1: hey everyone
0: hey how are you feeling
1: i'm feeling great what about yourself
0: i'm okay i'm okay i'm just um this is the first fyi like virtual podcast recording that i've done so i'm so sorry in advance if it's different if the sounds a bit different but i'm just like you know trying to just go with the flow of it but I'm, i'm okay i'm okay so just to kind of get started um Talk to us, I know when you first reached out to me, you, you first of all spoke about Talk DEI and I'm going to work it backwards with you and understand um a bit more about that and get back into your journey and how, how you kind of landed there. Right. Um, but, but what is, for those that don't know, what is Talk DEI?
1: Talk DEI is an early stage uh, tech startup. Um, it's a DEI uh, startup. So we're a diversity support Services marketplace, and so we connect companies to diverse suppliers, experts, and products and services that create inclusive workforce. Um, so that can be practitioners, that can be technology solutions that help create inclusive environments, that can be agencies that come into organizations to help build out DEI strategies. I like to say it's a DEI Amazon.
0: Right. Okay. So that is when you first told me about it, by the way, I thought that it was a really, really brilliant idea. Um, I thought that there's a massive need for it, especially because companies are increasingly wanting to be more inclusive and more diverse as well. So what, I guess, what was the trigger point for you? What made you want to start talk DEI in the first place?
1: Just being candid, uh, I've been in the tech industry for about seven years. Um, as you may know, um, I'm an anomaly across the board. The tech industry only has 2% Black presence globally. So a lot of times I was the only you know, black person on my teams, definitely in the sales vertical, which is, um, you know, white male dominated. And so I picked interest in diversity early on in my career um, before DEI was an actual business vertical within organizations. It was just like an extracurricular alternative that you could do for your organization. So it first started out at a startup I was at. They asked me, did I want to go to um, ethnic-based conferences to represent the company and um, gain, you know, diverse clients and customers. And so that was my first entry to diversity. I think that I was so kind of frustrated with The lack of diversity in technology um, and all of my work with going out to schools, talking to black and brown students, building out strategies around diversity at all these companies Mm -hmm. um, as an extracurricular, I knew that this is something that. If it's going to be a need within the organization, they need to invest in this, not just utilize the representation within um, and have, you know, black, brown, ethnic people within organizations doing this work on top of their normal day to day. And so I think that that's where the frustration came um, to me because it was like, you know, it's a lot of people that wanted to be involved, but just really didn't have the bandwidth. Right. And so a lot of times I would be working my normal day to day jobs. And then I would really be serious about diversity within these organizations. And I'm talking about working 14, 15 hours a day because, you know, I really wanted to push the initiative within these organizations. So I think it was just a frustration of my own personal experience in the work that I I was doing and actually going out and talking to students at historical black colleges and understanding that it was a huge gap around Access to opportunity and mm-hmm. education around different industries, and understanding that you don't have to have a 4.2 uh, GPA to get at these technology companies. And so, mm-hmm. if there's no one that's going to go out to these communities and touch these 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 students or talk to these professionals and give them the roadmap, then you know how do they know that these opportunities exist?
0: Mm -hmm. so was that your role so when you were working I guess in the internal ERGs um I'm not sure if you you refer to them in the states as ERGs as well when you was working there was was your role to bring in underrepresented talent or was it to um initiate programs what was your main responsibility when you were doing that that um role
1: Right. So um, at my first tech company, it was no official ERG. So that was uh, risk-alized. It was no official ERG at that point. Um, they just really had me go out to conferences and be a representation. And so it may be, you know, African-American financial con- conference because that was a FinTech company
0: yeah. to recruit
1: and be representation. It was at my second tech company yeah. where um, I helped with the initiation of what was called Black Employees and Mentors, which was um, a Black ERG that Splunk had created. Um, my role there, I was in the recruiting. We had different channels within the ERG. So I was a part of the recruiting channel, but I also was the director of operations of our very first black conference that we had at that organization. So I was over remote offices. And so with that role, I was pretty much in charge of building out the event strategy for our black employee and mentors conference that we were having in February during black history month and reaching out to the external offices because of what I had did in my office in Plano, Texas. Um, and, I was really given a lot of leadway from the president of that ERG at that time to be disruptive. And so meaning that I really could do anything that I wanted if I was able to follow it all the way through. So in that role, not only did um, I partner with historical black colleges, mm-hmm. I was able to go out to those historical black colleges, get representation, meaning engineers, HR, mm-hmm. um, to go out to me to those colleges and perform technology talks and not only educate the black students about our company, but about technology in general and how they can really shift their majors into getting in a technology career. So that was the start. Um, the The second thing was really trying to build out a strategy of how our ERG could partner with different vendors and organizations like Afrotech um, and different conferences, not like NSBE, um, that had a a lot of black talent. Um, And instead of us as a company um, trying to source all of these, different people, but partnering with the organizations that already had the pipelines and so building out that strategy. So I had a lot of different roles within that ERG um, because it was up to me and up to like how far I could go with everything. And I was given that leadway to do that. And so I was really getting a lot of, I guess, goals that I had Um, done very very quickly like very quickly like a month that's done so let's go ahead and and get to the next thing right
0: so the thing is so from my understanding it seems as if you were just casually working in tech and um and and they just asked you alan you're black Can you do this for us? How did you feel like when they asked you that initially? Because I know sometimes when I speak to different people, some people are happy to go ahead and represent like myself and yourself. But some individuals, they initially take offense and say, why do you, you know, why should I be the one to kind of carry that? So how did you feel? And it seems as if you managed to pick things up and be great with the initiatives that you're working on? How did you learn what, you know, what to do, what you were doing? How did you figure all of that out from scratch?
1: Well, to just go back a little bit, because I'm not going to like give all the credit to tech companies. Um, I I believe I had a lot of history before um, even getting in technology. So, you know, I was I was out of high school at 16. I was emancipated at 16 years old here in the States. That means that you are a legal adult. I was in college at 16 years old. Um, and so one of the biggest things that I was very passionate about when I was 16 in college was economic development and underserved communities. So I started my very first organization um, around economic development in black communities. And I started this organization, I was living in Dallas, Texas, um, and I would go to different black businesses and gather data and understand, you know, What gaps were were they having when it came to scaling and growing their businesses? Because just to be candid, just to go back a little bit, we have we have some great businesses in the black communities locally, everywhere, all over the United States. And it always was um, interesting to me why these companies or these these restaurants never became corporations.
0: Right. Um,
1: you know, we you may have a soul food restaurant in your local neighborhood where the line is down the street every single day. Yeah. Right. Um, why is not this like a KFC? Why is okay, this like a high yeah. So I wanted to kind of understand that. And so I would go to all these organizations and all these different businesses. And I realized it was a huge gap and a lot of disparity and a lot of redlining that was going on when it came really? to economics. Yes. Okay.
0: So, like, what? Like, what? What type of things did you discover? And this is this is a very important note because I think non-blacks don't understand some of the barriers that we go through at all at all stages in education business careers they think sometimes that we're holding on to our history and we don't currently um, face barriers so I, right. I want you to, to kind of tell us what you found because i know there's probably some things that you unpacked in those conversations i would love for you to enlighten me further and tell me what things did you discover
1: right um the, the number one thing across the board was loans. Like a lot of businesses were stuck in the places or the infrastructure that they were in because of the loans, because they didn't have access to capital. And the capital that they did raise to start their business or to start their restaurant or their barbershop was the interest rate was so ridiculous to the point where we're 20 years in and we really still don't own our business. No matter how much revenue that we're bringing in, we are such in debt because of the interest rate behind, behind, you know, the initial loan, the initial loan. Wait, to so start. Question, do question, do you have
0: any data or did you research if the interest rates differed for other communities and other people, or do you think it's just that we weren't these people just weren't great with managing the interest rate. Were, were they different? Like, Yeah, what was the...
1: I mean, it's it's already facts in place that, you know, when it comes to uh, minorities trying to get business loans across the board, I actually was just in a meeting uh, early this week with the SBA and speaking on on behalf of the community and asking questions on why are we still dealing with these things at, in 2022? So yes, there is definitely a differentiator when it comes to not only us getting approved for certain for certain loans, but also in the interest rate um, because there is a societal, um, I would say lie about um, minority businesses scaling right and right. you know and so these these certain i guess check boxes that these banks or these lenders have in place when it comes to minority businesses and false false um i guess expectations and false theories around us when it comes to us being entrepreneurs and scaling businesses really does play a factor in how we do receive funding and how we When we do receive funding, it's not that much. It's not the entirety of what we need to be able to grow and scale our businesses, but it's so scarce to the point we have to take what we can to be able to grow our businesses. And so that's a lot of what happens is is that, you know, I may need $120,000 for this business, but I was only able to, Get a loan for $50,000, $60,000. And because this only one bank approved me for this, I have to take this money um, because I want to build my business. But that's not enough for me to grow and scale my business. And this is something that I've dealt with as, and that I'm dealing with as a tech founder. Even, uh, today. even today. So, you know, so we're talking about, you know, this was years, this was about, nine years ago, 10 years ago, um, with businesses that have been around for a very long time and they're still in debt. I think that that was my route to understanding businesses, understanding the gaps in the, in the black community, organizing, learning how to organize, um, I'm also a transgender male. Um, so, second year in college, I started an organization called Trans Men of Melanin. Um, I started that as a group uh, via Facebook and Instagram, where I provided trans men, um, black and brown trans men all over the world uh, with resources, medical resources, counseling, um, you know. Resources that they had in their areas. Um, and then I became um, suicide prevention certified. So I started a hotline um, before they even had a transgender hotline or anything like that. I had a hotline uh, where I would ask questions. Was it just you by yourself or did you have a team? I had a team of individuals. So I had representation. Uh, In geographic areas. So in the East Coast and the West Coast, I had at the time there was a big issue within the military where, um, you know, the president had put in certain Uh, mandates when it came to transgender individuals so I had a guy that was a representation from the military I had a guy in the UK and so I made sure everybody was suicide uh, prevention certified and we had a hotline we would do like tech support all of these different things Um, I grew this this organization from 1 to 850 um, people people yeah worldwide when,
0: when did you do this
1: this was in 2017 and over, was,
0: over what time period did you grow it over um
1: it took me about uh it took us about six months to get thirty thousand followers on instagram so it was and it was 85 percent trans men all over the all over the world um it took six months to grow it. Um, and I founded the organization for two and a half years, and then I gave it to my business partner um, that was in the military, um, Calvin, and to, for him to um, take over the group. Um, but yeah, uh, that
0: was... And that's the runs today as well.
1: Yeah, so yeah, they've changed the name. Is Black Men of Trans... Black Men um, is the organization, Inc., Um, I don't no longer run it. But yeah, when I was running it. um, Yeah, that that was an early stages of me in my transition. I started that organization because I didn't have any representation within my family when it came to LGBTQ period. I didn't really know anything about about um, that community. Um, and I also didn't know any though anybody from the trans male experience, right? So I wanted to really get a feedback to understand a little of the, I guess, pros and cons of transitioning as a black or brown male and some of the experiences that those have had in the community, but it ended up turning to something else that, I started realizing when I would connect with all of these men that there was there was other um, pains and issues um, that were not being addressed because even from the media perspective, you don't hear a lot about transgender males. Like you may hear um, about trans women. You may hear about other, other dynamics. So it, it, it was a lot and, and I needed to support the best way that I could because my experience I felt different from a lot of the experiences that I would come across when it came to um, the individuals individuals in that community in that organization that I had. So I think that I had I, I've had a lot of experience with organizing and social impact. In a lot of different areas and feeling the need to solve problems and create solutions uh, for things. And I think that that's why when these businesses came up to me and they asked me, I, I did think of it like anybody else would think of it. Like, okay you want to use me as a black person in your organization to push whatever this initiative is. But I was the right person for the job because I feel like I'm already passionate about it. I think that the problem is whenever you as an organization, they want someone to do the job and then they find out that you are passionate and you do know your stuff. Um, you know, sometimes that can be a problem within organizations because maybe they just want you to be a representation. Maybe they just want you to do the minimal. So it's up to you as a activist or a, a, a practitioner or a diversity advocate to understand, is your organization or your company really, really interested in implementing diversity, equity, and inclusion? And what role do they want you to play? And I think that if I could do it all over again, those would be the questions that I would ask because I feel like in a lot of cases, I may have overstepped my boundaries. In, in, in what sense? Um, I think that a lot of time, and we can just go ahead and just be transparent about this. I think a lot of times when organizations come to internal talent of representation for insight or resources to be able to expand their DEI strategies, they may be looking for a couple. It just depends on your organization. They may be looking for maybe a couple of recruitments. The budget for the diversity, equity, inclusion may only be $150,000, you know, so it, it may differ from the other budgets that they have in those organizations. You really need to understand what your organization is trying to do, because I feel like you can really come to an issue where you're doing a lot of work within your organization or you're trying to make a real impact. And your mission does not align with the organization's mission, so it's really, really crucial that you try to understand what your organization is really trying to do internal, because um, okay. not everybody's really trying to push that initiative as far as it can go, and that has been my experience.
0: The thing is, I do, I do agree with you. I do, I do think that a lot of companies talk about wanting to do DNI. they have the ERGs they have the you know potentially external people coming in to help them they do sometimes a bare minimum do you think it's our responsibility to educate them on the reasons as to why it's really important or if a company then says we're doing it because it's the thing to do now so let's just do what we can to make it look as good as we can Do you think we then should step away and be like, well, I cannot help you? Or should it be a thing where we say, let me educate you further in how this is, um, I guess, beneficial or why diversity, equity, inclusion is important in life, not just in the workplace?
1: No, my answer to that, I do not think that it is representation within the organization to teach organizations why this is important. We're in 2022, there is enough reports, there's enough analytics, there's enough use cases from a return on the investment side that all organizations get across their, their laps, definitely at the C-suite, whether it comes from multicultural marketing, whether it comes to talent acquisition and gender pay gap, all of these different things these leaders are in training trainings about this they're going to galas about this they are fully
0: aware. Are, they, are they aware are they reading the reports are they being given the reports
1: are they going to the conferences that's the question you have to ask right uh nasdaq if, if you're if you're if you're a nasdaq held company Mm -hmm. Right now, maybe if you're a medium sized business, maybe if you're a small business at depending on what capacity, if you're a startup that's in series C and above, you should be well aware of diverse DEI implementation at this point. That's why it's all these organizations scrambling around at this point. There has been global mandates. There has been political mandates in place. There has been NASDAQ held mandates in place that's holding these companies accountable of their actions mm-hmm. and meeting these annual reports, meeting these numbers, needing to understand how many diverse employees that you're that you're hiring on a day to day basis. What diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives have you started this year? Where are you at with this? These are things that's in place right now mm-hmm. as of after George Floyd, February 1st of 2020. Right. And I understand it's still fresh and companies are still putting their minds around it. But at that point, that's whenever you hire an expert who has the experience to come into your organization to be able to build out a compliance strategy, to build out an ERG strategy, -hmm. strategy, to understand your HR and people operations gaps, policies. You have to bring in professionals who just like you bring in a marketing consultant to come in and to build out your marketing channels within your organizations or revamp your sales department and sales operations. I've been in sales for seven years. We're always having people come in and do trainings that's outsourced and third party vendors that's coming in, teaching us different techniques and all of this money that goes into this department. Where we're talking about DEI, we're seeing a 75% return on investment when a company decides to invest into diversity, equity, inclusion as an organizational whole, Mm -hmm. not just in the people operations, not just in the HR department. So there is a, a ROI attached to DEI. If you want to create this strategy within your organization, just like anything else, you contract professionals to come in and build out these strategies.
0: I agree, I do' agree, and when you put it like that and you explain it in i guess in that level of detail um it it does make sense. I think where and i've what I've seen what I've witnessed is a lot of companies um they will have the information, they will have the facts, they will have the expert. And there's still resistance to invest properly, because I think I think it's a new it's a new business area or business or department, as we call it, to a lot of businesses. And they're trying to get their head around. Is this something short term? I've, I've even had a client say to me, OK, so once you make us diverse, then is that it? Is is the, is the work done? Like, like a lot of companies think that this is just like a, you know, a one time stop service and then that's it. And um, they're, they're not thinking about the fact that this is a long-term role and my actual belief in and in, in the this dni function in a business is that it's actually that person's responsibility whoever's running that department to hold every single department accountable for making sure they're inclusive in everything that they, that that they're doing not just you know having a device diverse team or a diverse supplier list but are you treating them properly are you paying them properly are you you know giving everyone the right opportunities and the right resources but yeah we can go on and on about this but i want to focus on you um you've, you've obviously done your research and you've, you're obviously really well equipped in the you know in the dni space one thing i wanted to find out from yourself you mentioned that it's really diff- it, it's, it's been a challenge for you to also get funding so the same issues you picked up on 10 years ago um, in regards to funding. You're you're finding that difficult now. Why is it difficult? What have you done to um, get funding for your business? What's that process been like for you? Just give us an insight into that.
1: Um, I feel like I've done everything. Um, I've been a part of organizations, accelerator programs. Um, I took a different route when I first started Talk DEI. I built out my network. Investors um DEI professionals I had over 500 plus interviews with DEI professionals across the board over
0: 500
1: over 500
0: over over what time period how long did this take you um
1: 2019 to 2020 I do come from a sales background I utilize my sales skills to go on LinkedIn reach out to prospects book meetings and having those conversations was really just me understanding the pain points of how professionals that are chiefs of diversity inclusion officers or work diversity, equity, inclusion functions, or have products in this, in this realm, what pains they were dealing with and to build a product to, to, to circle around that. But it took me a year. It took me a year and a half to have all of those conversations. Um, I've, I've done everything under the sun. What I'm learning now in year three, is it's not about what you know in this industry, in this tech industry. It's about who you know. Um, Black founders are 0.002% of the founders in the tech industry. Um, This is definitely a... Uh, white-dominated industry when it comes to these programs, when it comes to venture capital, when it comes to these accelerator programs. Now, with different mandates as of last year, there are diversity portfolios in place, but I'm also seeing inflation in interest when it comes to those things. And because I'm so educated about those realms, I think that it's been difficult for me to take Cents on a dollar. Definitely when I know that I have a legacy company, this is a first to market platform in an unregulated uh, industry where I have the opportunity as an organization to build out the structure, just like the Instagrams and the Facebooks when they first came out. And so I understand my worth. I understand what I need to actually scale. And then I am a solo founder, non-technical founder. And so and a Black founder at that. So it's a lot of barriers other than just capital. I would just say capital is one of the issues because in this industry, it's more so about being able to have a team, being able to have the right people around you that can help you scale um, a unicorn tech company. And so that's probably been a bit of my... Um, barriers, but where I'm at right now, I'm in Utah, I'm in Silicon Slopes. Uh, I'm thankful for the leaders here um, in this area that are really doing a great job of trying to push me and um, putting me at the table with these VCs, putting me at the table with these angel investors, putting me at the table with people. And so it is a process, but I do believe that I'm, I'm going to get more than enough funding as of this year.
0: Yeah, I believe it as well. I feel like with how you're I mean you're extremely passionate and alongside passion you're knowledgeable um and what you're doing it makes sense. Those three components put together um and also you've got lived experiences as well. Those things put together will really help to um I guess not even be um, sell to investors, but once you do get out there, you're going to have so many um DNI professionals using you you know and um, working I mean I I for one definitely if it launches in the UK do you have plans to launch globally or you just yeah yeah
1: I do have plans to launch globally I don't know when that will be able to happen but I do have plans to launch globally but I do the biggest thing with that is understanding every country's DEI initiatives are different Right. So what South America is doing with diversity, equity and inclusion from a business standpoint is totally different. Like they're focused on women and gender pay gap really strongly It's certain barriers that they haven't even pushed as as a culture, just like UK is at a different level, Africa is at a different level. So um, that's the biggest thing with Talk DEI, and I've done a lot of research in that and understanding that as rollout, as countries uh, roll out, and when, when we get to that stage, yeah. it's based off of that country in marketing, how that country and what their needs is and understanding what their diversity, equity, inclusion needs, because every country is different when it comes to this.
0: So my understanding of your background, so you start, you went you went into tech before then, when you were 16, you had an interest anyway in how black businesses were thriving or not thriving. You must have had, I guess, even more, I guess, ex- experiences before then to lead you to that point of curiosity. So just, if you don't mind, walk us through your upbringing. So where, where are you from originally? Te- Texas, did you say?
1: Well, I was born in Mobile, Alabama. Oh, Um, Alabama, okay. Yes, I was born in Mobile, Alabama. Um, I was raised um, in Dallas, Texas, Um, but growing up, I, you know, There was instability, I would say, in the home. So we traveled a lot. Um, I lived in Atlanta. I lived in Ohio. I lived in Detroit. There was a lot of moving around. Fun fact about me growing up, um, I went to 26 schools before uh, middle school.
0: What? So that's almost... a a insanely unique thing, but also a blessing because it means that you probably had the ability to pick up um new skills and learn from people really quickly and build up new connections what i'm I'm making an assumption by the way, what right. did that do for you growing up? How did that have an impact on you?
1: Well, as an adult, I see why I'm so different uh, from a perspective of adaptability uh, growing up. But yeah, it made me be able to adapt to new environments, new cultures, gain friends very quickly, learn how to sell myself because I would go to schools in the middle of the school year as a new kid. Um, and I would have to get acclimated very quickly when it came to making friends or, learning the curriculum or building out relationships. So I think that's what it did do for me from a positive light. Um, but I, in my teenage years, I, I didn't notice that. I didn't understand that. As an adult, as I'm navigating in this business world, as I've been building out my company, I, I see the strength that, um, you know, just diverse experience has brought into my life. And I think that one thing that helped me along the way is the fact that I've always been interested in learning how the psychology of people work. Um, That was like the motivating factor for me as a child, just understanding different people and how people are not that much different from each other that they think they are. Okay,
0: okay. Tell us us why you think that.
1: Well, I've been around it all. I went to predominantly white schools. I've been to predominantly black schools. I've been to diverse schools where it was representation across the board. I remember in elementary school, I would like to go help, you know, remedial classes and like. Remedial, what's that? uh, So here in the States, um, you know, neurodiversion or of uh, accessibility you know mm-hmm. kids would have their own classes. I would go oh. and try to help and volunteer uh, so I could get out of, like, different classes that I oh, be- I, <laughs> yeah, I, thought, so- I thought you were doing it because you were being nice. Because were- <laughs> I was being nice. I was being nice. I was being nice but, I would, but I would go to those classes and talk to those students. I actually right. even had, you know, a cousin growing up who was a teacher for, you know, autistic kids and stuff. And um, they would go on the weekends and go to different things. And I would go with her. Um, and I oh. I just had as a child a curious mind when it came to different people. And so what I mean by I think that everybody thrives to be a good person genuinely from the perspective of their reality. Um, I've learned over time and as a child, I think I understood that people are only perspectives of their reality right so if you're raised a certain way if you don't have that much access to what's out of your community or your environment how could you know what's outside of that right and so when it came to racism because i experienced that as a child where i was the only you know black person in my entire school I never allowed those things to be barriers for me to create friendships with people. Um, And then I can, what I can say is what my mom did very well was she really enforced in me early on to understand my history when it came to my black history and well beyond slavery. Um, So when it came to, how we were prior to slavery, the different cultures of, you know, Black people across Aboriginal environments. I kind of had that understanding at a very young age, six years old. I had a 10th grade reading level. So I would read chapter books. I remember seven years old, I read, you know, Letters to a Birmingham Jail jail from Martin Luther King, Um, The Color Purple. I, I, I had a a, a extensive amount, a amount of knowledge when it came to just Black history across the board. Okay. And so I understood comprehensively, you know, what our people had went through. And so I never allowed that to be a barrier when it came to certain experiences that I had. I, think I just cool, confronted cool. them.
0: That's incredible. So sorry to interrupt you, but the fact that your mum made sure that she educated you and she gave you that power—that is—that is really good because I've interviewed various people and there's some people that it really had an impact in their confidence growing up, in you know how they um, interacted with different races. But that's you know I, I love the fact that you understood your history and you took that with you know confidence when you was in those white schools and you experienced racism, how did you respond in the moment? Because it's great to say, yes, you knew who you were. You didn't let that stop you. But when you physically experienced it, how did you respond? Um,
1: I would, I, I, I always been very vocal as I am now, as you can see, I can, I can talk. Right. So I've been that way as a child. And so it was about advocating for myself. And then there was a, there would be a talk between me um, my mother and I like if this happens make sure you let me know and so I'm I re- I'll never forget um, I was going to a school in Fort Worth um, in Roanoke uh, Texas and that's at that time it was very predominantly white I remember going to class and they would put me in the back uh, and I remember my mother, you know, she wanted to see where I was sitting in class, where I was, you know, I needed to be in the front. And I would see her have these conversations. She made Uh. sure she had these conversations in front of me. So I would advocate for myself and, you know, make sure that I really understood okay, that doesn't make me feel good. That's a microaggressive comment that I think that they're uh, trying to mess with my intelligence. I had that awareness. And so I would advocate, I'm going to the principal. Um, you know, I don't, I feel uncomfortable with what you're saying. Uh, you're telling me that so a good. C a, a, a C grade is okay, but everybody else has, you know, an A or B. So it's obviously something I don't understand. Can we talk about this? And yeah, a lot of that, a lot of that was about, you know, my mother coming to me and letting me know that my grades, my performance was initially up to me, right? Because in the real world, I was going to be have to be accountable and responsible for those things, right? Mm-hmm. And so I had to advocate for myself. If I felt like I needed some extra help or something, then I need to talk ask about tutoring. I need to have these conversations. Um, but I did see how it affected other growing up, other black and brown kids. Right, right. How, you know, they wouldn't advocate for themselves or how people thought I was destructive because up I, I would speak up for myself. Yeah. They would exclude me. So it would, it not only, you know, those who were the same, you know, race as me, but even you know, the white kids would exclude me because they felt like you know, I was disruptive, because I would speak up for myself and I was different. Mm-hmm. But I also have seen over time, even in corporate, in my own in my own life in corporate, of why I'm so thankful yeah. that I was able to get that, because even now I see how black people get passed over in opportunities, yeah. they're not educated or trained properly during, you know, the training period on jobs and they get no support and things of that that such. So Mm -hmm. um, how it made me feel, I would say it did give me a complex of feeling like I had to always speak up for myself and even now I get tired of that because it's like, I've been doing that my entire life and it's like, why can't I just be treated equitably just like everyone else in the room? Um, And I think that it has given me a sadness in certain circumstances, but I understand that my purpose is a little bit, that's a part of the purpose. Someone has to take on the burden, like, our Rosa Parks and our Martin Luther Kings and our Nelson Mandela's. Somebody has to take the burdens so that the next generation is able to strive. And so I've accepted that, but I shouldn't have to accept it. And so as a child, I think that I felt like I had support because I had my mother. I knew that If I went to my mother and I told her that I was having an issue and I advocated for myself and that issue was still apparent in whatever capacity, whether it was in sports, Mm -hmm. whether it was in education, I knew that she was going to be my backup. And anytime she came to school, uh, things were going to get handled.
0: Why did you move around so much as a child?
1: Well, um, I would say... A part of it is my, my mother was married to my stepfather. He had a traveling job. That's another part of it. And I think that it's my opinion, uh, that my mom was trying to find also trying to find her fit in this society as a strong black woman. Something that I understand now that I didn't understand then. Um, And so it was a lot of trauma uh, that I went through as a child when it came to the experience of that relationship um, that caused us to be having to move around a lot. Uh, But also a part of that, I felt like, in some type of facet, my mom was trying to find out where her fit was, uh, and where she could succeed. Um, my mom goes, she, she, she is a person who is very strong. And I think that during that time, she wanted to open up certain doors for herself and those doors was closed, you know? And so A lot of times it was like the chase of something new just to find out we get here Mm. and that door is open, that door is closed as well. Mm. Um, Plus all of the trauma of that, you know, that relationship that I experienced at a young age, which Mm. caused us to move around a lot. Mm.
0: That's interesting that your mom moved around as well to also try to figure out what works for her and it's it's sad that people have to that people have to do that because different i guess environments may not be as inclusive because i have, I also have the theory that d d e i should be applied in day to day society as well as workplaces you know and this is a prime example of that if your mum probably felt a sense of belonging. A sense of you know, she had the tools and resources in places where she felt like she could add value and really, you know, feel like she belongs there. Then she probably wouldn't have moved around so much. Perhaps I'm 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 not sure. Um, right. But it sounds like you had a very very influential strong mum, and just shout shout out to your mum because it couldn't have been easy. So, I guess at what at what point do you, did you then decide? To transition, um, growing up, yeah,
1: yeah. So I was um, seventeen. So I always, um, since the age of twelve, identified masculine. Um, so Both. My, at at twelve, uh, so my identity, my the way that I dressed, the way that I um, was from twelve to to seventeen, was like a masculine. Um, identity so
0: can i ask why or how that came came about at 12 because that's such a young young age so why from that point did things switch
1: it was really my my whole life i think that i didn't know about transgender i didn't know that you could change your gender i didn't know any of those different things um but I would say four years, I, w- I was in tennis, I was in basketball, I was in b- in baseball, I was an athletic child. Um, but I remember like, and I started sports really early, probably five years old, five, six years old. Wow. And I remember looking at myself and s- seeing a, a, a little boy. And that's the way that I identified myself. It was something that I kept to myself for the longest really? uh, I, yeah it was something i kept for the longest i think that um as i started to go through puberty and i started seeing things a little bit differently than others meaning you know i wasn't attracted to males um and now we you know that was more on a sexuality end uh, i was attracted to to women and i didn't want to wear you know i didn't want to be formally addressed as girl um I hung around a lot of guys um I always knew that it was I felt different you know I never forget when I was eight years old I was in art class and my teacher told us to draw a portrait of how we would look when we were older right and you know of course I did what I felt like I had enough intelligence to do what I felt like that they wanted, right? But I remember drawing that portrait and, you know, I didn't want to look like that. You know, I would collect GQ magazines, men's Vogue, seeing myself as like, you know, as an adult, I'm I'm wearing suits. You know, I had an image in my head of what I was supposed to look at like as an adult.
0: So question... What do you think were the contributing factors to you feeling that way? Or do you think that's just how you felt and you can't explain it and there wasn't any massive contributing factors? So I know you said you hang around with males a lot, you like to, you know, males fashion and everything. But was there anything that took place or was there anything that you saw in your childhood or conversations that you had anything at all or was it just something that naturally
1: progressed it was something that naturally progressed I always say like you don't choose um and I can't speak for everybody but all I can say is from my experiences you cannot choose this life this life chooses you so prior to me even having any type of understanding about gender, sexuality, all of those different things, I gravitated towards certain things growing up that was, I mean, it's all evolved to to who I am as an adult today, but I gravitated, I was, you know, I gravitated to the sports cars. I knew Rolls Royce Bentley and Mm -hmm. Lamborghini. I knew all, I gravitated towards certain things as a child But did I know that that was, you know, transgender or that I want to be in a different gender? I just knew that I was a boy. I felt like a boy. I acted like a boy. You know, it was certain things that I didn't comprehend about the female experience. And even to this day, I didn't understand certain things. I didn't identify or align with a lot of those things. And so I don't think I think it's just something that unfolded. Over time. And so, me making the decision such at a young age was after counseling. I had had counseling since I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, even prior to that. And this was a discussion that I would have in my counseling sessions. And try to have those conversations with my with my family. The counselor would try to have those conversations with my family. I think that I just come from a family where it's not a lot of LGBTQIA representation in my family, and so it was a it was very confusing for them. Um, but also, when I did make the decision to become more masculine prior to medically transitioning. It was about, you don't have to put yourself in a box. Um, you don't have to succumb to societal expectations. That doesn't, just because you feel the way that you feel doesn't mean that you are not going to be successful. So I think at that very point, there had been acceptance that this was a choice that I was making or the decision that was upon my life and everything still continued okay. like it was still going to be a continue of uh, education it was still going to be a continue of being a best representation of yourself right. um and so, so yeah
0: sorry to um interrupt you alan i know it's a bit of a lag but um when you first spoke about this with your family how did they respond particularly your mum. so when did you first speak to her about it and how did she respond
1: well my mom had uh known about cuz i had i had relationships i would say like little children relationships with with girls growing up it started early yeah yeah so she had kind of found out early on like uh you know that my friend wasn't actually my friend. Right. And so those were things that she kind of picked up on prior to the age of 12 reason why she put me in counseling. Cause she didn't understand uh, you know, why those things were happening. When I made the decision to transition, there had already been four years, four and a half years where I had presented myself as masculine. My- so I think that with my mother, her biggest uh, fear was, well, let's wait till you turn 18. Let's wait till you turn 19 to make that decision. Because it wasn't far-fetched that she knew I was going to make that decision. It was more so like she felt like I needed to wait till I turned 18 and 19. Oh my um, till my mind developed a little bit more. But at that, I was, I was emancipated at 16. I was on my own paying my own bills in college. So at that point, I wanted to make the decision over my life that I felt like was going to be comfortable. I didn't think that from 16 to 19, anything would change and nothing did change. So
0: what what has that mental
1: journey been like for you? Mentally, I, I wouldn't say the transition has been a journey. I would say identifying as a black man in this society. I always tell people, me transitioning, I've never dealt with any trauma uh, in regards to my transition. I've never been made fun of. I never had those experiences growing up when it came to my gender or sexuality. I never had those experiences, my family, My grandmother was, you know, a pivotal point in my life. Mm -hmm. She accepted me. I have seven uncles. You know, there there was a lot of acceptance across the board because I just always been the type of person, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I think that people understood that. Um, Mm -hmm. When it came to friends, uh, you know, never had any issue. When it came to relationships, never had any issues. And a lot of that, and I talk about this um, a lot, is there is such a thing in the transgender community that's passing privilege, meaning because you pass as the gender, you don't deal with a lot of discrimination, right. and so unless I tell people I'm a transgender male, yeah, a lot of people would not know. Oh, yeah, and so for the longest. It wasn't a discussion that I communicated unless I was in an intimate relationship with a person. It's right. just here recently over the last two years where I've had candid conversations and opened up about you know, my gender, but I've never really dealt with a lot of discrimination. And even when I did decide to open up and let people know, I didn't really deal with a lot of discrimination really to this point. To so I think that a lot of the discrimination that I have dealt with has nothing to do with my my transition, but more so of me identifying as a Black male wow. in this society. Wow. And and I, that's what I was, I don't think anybody is prepared for that. I don't even think that young Black boys who now turn to adults, 18, 19 years old, and now you're out here in the world on your own, I don't even think they're prepared. I had to get prepared early on because I was on my own at 16, 17, 18 years old. And so I had that life experience that was a jump ahead of a lot of individuals across the board. And so, yes, I've dealt with a lot of discrimination with me just being a black male in society because unless I tell you I'm a transgender male, nobody really knows.
0: No. So when did your, I guess, official identity switch over? So like legally, um, you know, I'm guessing you might've been in college at the time. So potentially you would have had loads of conversations with your friends and said, okay, as of today, address me as this, or did did, did you not need to have those conversations? Was that quite quite easy for you?
1: I really didn't have to have those conversations. Okay. Uh, I had to have those conversations with family. But I didn't really have to have those conversations because I was already identified and already uh, uh, people already were calling me he through high school. OK, okay. Uh, OK. I had name dropped and I didn't realize it. Um, they call it name drop when you drop your birth name. You know, I had already done that when I was 12, 13, but I didn't know that's what it was. Right. Uh, so nobody was calling me. Nobody has called me by my birth na- name since I was like 10. Years oh, ago. I see. Yeah. I see. So, yeah, it w- that transition for friends was easy. Was easy, and I think a lot of my male friends, uh, which I hung out with a lot of just uh, cis males, were more so excited for me because it was like they always seen me that way, you know. So I think that there was a lot of support from actual males. Um, I think I had kind of like skeptic from actual, you know, born women that felt like, you know, like, are you sure you want to make this, you know, decision? But from my male friends, it was very, it was a lot of support there. Um, I, I didn't really have, I made the decision. I told my mother, I told my grandmother, I told my family, mm. um, um, They had to kind of really accept it. Um, And my transition, once I became medically transitioned, um, the aesthetic wise started showing very quickly, like less than, you know, I didn't know how long it was gonna take. They were saying six months to a year, but Mm -hmm. it started working very quickly, like about two months in. So I started having like um, external changes there, like, facial hair and things like that. So that was very quickly. And I think that just over time, people just started realizing um, it was only my family that I had to say, you know, don't say she, use the right pronouns. Um, But at the same time, I think where my disadvantage was is I, since college to now, I have been traveling. So it was a long period of time, four or five years, where I wasn't around my family a lot because I was traveling for my career, really trying to figure out where I'm, what I'm going to do in tech. So I was all of these different places. I, so I think that it is kind of difficult for people to like learn these pronouns and learn these different things when you're not in their peripheral, yeah. they, they're not around you every day. Right. They only see you in the last image that they've seen you in. But other than that, I, I don't really feel like it was really a difficult process. Like I said, I've always been able to advocate. And I tell anybody, just advocate your boundaries and always just speak up for yourself and just let people know. They, and if people love you, they, they have no choice. And if they don't accept it, then you don't really need them in your life, right? And so for me, I just really had to just advocate for myself and let people know like this is this is my life this is where i'm going with everything
0: for people listening that may have a bias or may have a lack of understanding education towards um transgender males or females what would you i guess what message would you give to them from based on your experience and if that's a difficult question for you I can try to rephrase it but just and the reason why I say this just to be completely candid is because a lot of um, people in the I guess from the black community in particular they have many 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 more questions many more um I guess biases, on this topic they you know because of culture because of religion and so forth so what message would you give to help with those biases or opinions
1: what I always say uh and I'll say this I can speak for myself and I'm gonna put this message out here I'm a person who is very spiritual, very religious. I'm a person who's been ordained. I'm a person that goes to church every Sunday. I'm a person that knows my culture. I'm a person who knows my background. I'm a person that knows my history. Uh, from when it comes to the black community and it comes to the black excellence in our journey into where we are today, right? Um, Transgender, LGBTQIA, is nothing new. The difference of where we're at today that I feel like makes a lot of people uncomfortable is that it's no longer in the closet. It's no longer a secret. Mm-hmm. Um, and the realities of the situation is that we're all human, mm-hmm. right? That's the basis of it. We are all human and we all have our own experiences our own perceptions Mm. our own upbringings Mm. and just because you identify differently from another person or you may not understand why another person does what they do doesn't give you the right to judge that person doesn't give you the right to speculate over that person yeah. The reality of the situation, if you're able to accept 400 years of slavery, okay, if you're able to accept 400 years of slavery and sit next to your counterpart and be able to shake hands and be able to move forward as a society in a whole, you should be able to acknowledge your brother, your sister, your cousin, or Someone that you may know who identifies of a different gender, a different sexuality, because the reality of it is it doesn't hurt or harm you. I think that the pain comes from not understanding because your perception is different. Your sexuality is different. And those thoughts or those experiences never crossed your mind. Mm. But LGBTQIA people are not a threat to you.
0: Mm, mm, mm.
1: And also, I just say that from my experience, as a privilege of a person who has passed in society, I can understand why there's not a lot of trans men, there's not a lot of people who come from my experiences that are passing in society and be able to be successful with no discrimination, no judgment, speaking up on behalf Of the community, and so that's that's what I can bring to the table is to be be transparent from my experiences, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's all I can say is that we have bigger fish to fry in the black community from being able to get capital to be able to scale our businesses. Let's ring the bell at um, NASDAQ so that we can become public corporations. You know. There's a lot of fish to fry, other than fighting within the community because you don't understand how someone identifies. Mm. Uh, it's ridiculous, right? So I think that that's that's what I can bring to the table, and that's what I can say about that.
0: I think you put you put that in such a bold and clear way, and I think the one thing that you know someone can take away is that we're all human? That's what I always say in every single diversity, equity, inclusion training, whenever I ever, ever have conversations. I just said, I always say we're human. Everyone deserves the right to feel and be whoever they want to be, so long as it's not hurting anybody as well. And I want to commend you. I think you've spoken about a lot of things on this podcast from the suicide helpline. I didn't have a chance. I wanted to keep, keep you talking. I didn't want to interject, but... That is incredible. Like, I can't imagine how many lives you've potentially helped to save worldwide. Um, And those are the type of things that I believe that God wants us to be doing to to prevent other people from, you know, doing things that harm themselves. I think that this is an incredible platform that you're building. Um, You're incredibly strong and resilient as well. And I think... There's so much to learn from you. And I hope that, you know, you get the funding you need, the support you need. And if there's anything else that my platform can do, Black Crate Connect, or if there's anyone else that that you want to connect with that you've seen me connect with, you're more than welcome to kind of reach out to me and, um, you know, connect and grow. I guess for any last words, is there anything else that you want to kind of talk about, mention about Talk DEI, um, anything that you really need to, to, that get discussed or plugged for today?
1: Um, all I ask is that if you're a diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner, you have a business, you have an agency, go get on the pre beta sign up list right now. Go to talkdei.io.com. Dot community. I own all the domain. <laughs> yeah. So you do if you put talk DEI, it'll take you to my website. Go sign up, do the survey. If you're a company or you're a service provider, get on the list um, and really allow people to know about this platform that is coming, support any area that you can support me, reach out to me directly. I'm a person who likes to actually get connected with the community, talk to people, talk to leaders. So get on my calendar. That's all I I, I can ask and understand that it's not about me. This is about elevating the community, the representation for the next generation. We need a, a black founder to go public. We need you know, a Black unicorn to go public so that our, our kids can say, just like we were able to say about the Oprah Winfrey's of the world, you mm-hmm. know, we need to be able to say, I can be a tech CEO. And yeah. that's what this is all about. And mm-hmm. I think that what I bring to the table is that I always will speak about bringing Black and Brown people Uh, neurodiversion people, veterans, because of my experience, forward, Uh, diverse representation, forward, because I am diversity. I am diversity. I am a person that understands the community from both sides of the gaps. I'm a person who has a diverse experience across the board, and I'm I'm a transgender male. So I speak to all different areas of the DEI experience across the board as representation. And so I just ask for the support from those because without you all, I'm not able to strive or succeed with something so major like what um, I'm trying to do with Talk DEI. And that's, that's, that's all I have to say about that. And I thank everybody for being out there and being on the front lines and doing this type of work um, and making a, Making a change and impact in your organizations and your communities—it's um, this is hard work, and so I thank everyone who's out there on the front lines doing this. Thank one.
0: you, thank you so so much, um, Alan. And just so everyone knows, how can they connect with you, you personally, on like on a personal front?
1: Um, I have Instagram, TalkDEI, Twitter, TalkDEI, business okay. page, TalkDEI. You can come to my LinkedIn, Alan Bray, um, and we'll have the link attached to this video. Reach out to me directly. I'm very responsive. Um, and usually you can reach out to me that way. You can also email me at info at talkdei.io or Bray at braymedia.co, okay?
0: okay all right well thank you thank you so so much giving you a round of applause so, being so open so informative um and for anyone that's listening out there feel free to share this informative episode and um yeah i look forward to meeting you all on the next podcast episode thank you so much alan thank you thank
1: you Thanks. bye